The Lost Language of Symbolism, an inquiry into the origin of certain letters, words, names, fairy tales, folklore, and mythologies. Volume 1, by Harold Bailey, read by Graham Dunlop, edited by Darren Grimes. Chapter 1, Introductory. At the beginning of each chapter, there's a summary of topics that I will narrate. Introductory, emblem trademarks of the Middle Ages, the Huguenots and papermaking, working men's guilds, Freemasonry and Gnosticism, the intimate relation between symbolism and language, antiquity of place names. Quote, there can be no question that an enormous number of these watermarks had a religious significance, but we are asked to believe, on the ground that the same symbol was used contemporaneously in various parts of Europe, that these symbols formed a means of intercommunication and spiritual encouragement between all those who had been admitted to the secrets of the sect. The suggestion has many points to recommend it, but it requires a prolonged and scholarly analysis before it can rank as an acceptable hypothesis. In all justice to Mr. Bailey, let us admit that he is not an arrogant or dogmatic. He has put forth a theory on somewhat insufficient grounds, and has evidenced some over-anxiety to expand that theory beyond reasonable limits. But he is ready to confess that his own work is one of suggestion rather than of proof, and he has undoubtedly established a claim to further consideration. His hypothesis is ingenious and up to a point seems tenable but at present we must regard it as not proven. Westminster Gazette, 12th May, 1909. This book, though not written specially with that end, substantiates the tentative conclusions formulated three years ago in a new light on the Renaissance. I then said, The facts now presented tend to prove that, one, from their first appearance in 1282, until the latter half of the 18th century, the curious designs inserted into paper in the form of watermarks constitute a coherent and unbroken chain of emblems. Two, that these emblems are thought fossils or thought crystals in which lie enshrined the aspirations and traditions of the numerous mystic and puritanic sects by which Europe was overrun in the Middle Ages. Three, Hence, that these paper marks are historical documents of high importance, throwing light not only on the evolution of European thought, but also upon many obscure problems of the past. 4. Watermarks denote that papermaking was an art introduced into Europe and fostered there by the pre-Reformation Protestant sects known in France as the Albigeois and the Vaudois and in Italy as the Cathari or Paterini. 5. That these heresies, though nominally stamped out by the papacy, existed secretly for several centuries subsequent to their disappearance from the site of history. 6. The embellishments used by printers in the Middle Ages are emblems similar to those used by papermakers, and explicable by a similar code of interpretation. 7. The awakening known as the Renaissance was the direct result of an influence deliberately and traditionally exercised by papermakers, printers, cobblers, and other artisans. 
eight, the nursing mother of the Renaissance and consequently of the Reformation was not as hitherto assumed Italy, but the provincial district of France. There is curious and direct proof of Vaudois influence at the end of one of the earliest editions of the Bible, that of 1535 known to collectors as the Olivetan, where the following claim is cunningly concealed in cipher. Les Vaudois, people evangelique, ont mis ses treasures en public. The vehicle in which this interesting cryptogram was concealed from the world at large is the stanza found at the end of the volume. The first letters of each word of these verses spells out the secret message. In the following studies, I have taken all symbolism to be my province, but the subjects illustrated are, as before, hitherto uninterpreted printer's marks and paper marks. Most of these signs have entirely lost their primitive significance, and are now used purely for commercial purposes. But there was a time when they were not only trade signs, but were also hieroglyphics, under which the pearl of great price was revered. The extraordinary tenacity with which the Vaudois or Albigeois maintained their traditions will to some extent account for the apparition of their mystic tenets in the form of paper marks. And it is possible to trace faintly the course of this tradition link by link. The paper mills of Europe have, in the main, always been situated in heretical districts. In Holland, for instance, which Bale describes as a great arc of heresy, and Lamartine as the workshop of innovators and the asylum and the arsenal of new ideas. But the technical terms of papermaking, such as retrie, a corruption of the French retire, imply that papermaking was primarily a French art, and as is well known, the introduction of papermaking into England was due to French refugees. Wherever these sufferers landed, they acted as missionaries of skilled labor and the records of the patent office show clearly the activity of the exiles, not only in manufacture but also in invention. Numerous patents were taken out by them for papermaking, printing, spinning, weaving, and other arts. In 1686, there is reference to a patent granted for making writing and printing paper. The patentees having lately brought out of France excellent workmen and already set up several new invented mills and engines for making thereof, not heretofore used in England. At the present day, the papermakers of Scotland enjoy a deserved preeminence, and it is interesting to find that their industry likewise owes also its introduction to the same source. At Glasgow, says Smiles, one of the refugees succeeded in establishing a paper mill, the first in that part of Scotland. The Huguenot who erected it escaped from France, accompanied only by his little daughter. For some time after his arrival in Glasgow, he maintained himself by picking up rags in the streets. But by dint of thrift and diligence, he eventually contrived to accumulate means sufficient to enable him to start his paper mill and thus to lay the foundation of an important branch of Scottish industry. The present makers of the paper used for the Bank of England's notes are descendants of the de Porto family of province, many of whose members are recorded as amongst the most active of the leaders of the Albigeois. 
After the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, the founder of the present business fled to England, where he died in 1704. In his will, which is written in French, he says, In the first place, I thank my God without ceasing for having put it in my heart to escape from persecution, and for having blessed my project in my own person and in that of my children. I regard my English refuge as the best heritage which I can bequeath to them. The headquarters of the Huguenots were Auvergne and Angoumois, in the southern provinces of France, where in Angoumois alone, according to Smiles, they own 600 paper mills. The revocation of the Edict of Nantes ostensibly wiped the Huguenots, whom Pope Clement XI identified with the execrable race of the ancient Albigenses, completely out of France. Yet it is characteristic of the spirit of the southern provinces that 100 years after that disastrous event, it was the progress to Paris of a battalion of Marseilles, marching as they believed to support the tottering Statue of Liberty that turned the scale of the French Revolution. The historian of papermaking at Arches in the south of France states that secret organizations dating from immemorial antiquity existed among the papermaking workmen and that these solidly organized associations of comradeship endured for long after the revolution. One is struck, says he, by the general spirit of insubordination, which from all time under the ancient regime animated the papermaking workmen, collaborating in the propagation of written thought, which during the 18th century was the main destructive agent of the existing state of affairs, until then respected. It would appear that the papermaking workmen had a foreknowledge of the social upheavals that were about to take place, and of which they were the obscure auxiliaries. Hecathorn devotes a chapter of his secret societies to these guilds or corporations, which existed not only among the papermakers, but also among other French artisans and journeymen. Freemasonry was early mixed up with this compagnonage and the various sections of it were known by titles such as the Sons of Solomon, the Companions of the Foxes, the Foxes of Liberty, the Independents, and so forth. The preliminary chapters of the present book, which I have cut to their lowest limits, will, I am afraid, read somewhat wearily, but in chapter 8 the reader will be introduced to some of the hitherto unappreciated beauties underlying fairy tales and in the later chapters we shall reach a group of facts that must, I think, undoubtedly have formed part of the gnosis, or secret wisdom of the ancients. It is common knowledge that during the early centuries of Christianity there existed certain Gnostics who claimed supernatural wisdom and an ability to restore to mankind the lost knowledge of the true and supreme God. The Gnostic, unlike the modern agnostic or avowed non-knower, claimed to be Gnosticos or good at knowing and to be the depository of Gnosis, a term defined by modern dictionaries as meaning philosophic insight, illumination, intuition, and a higher knowledge of spiritual things. The chief function of Gnosticism was moral salvation but it also claimed to get behind the letter of the written word and to discover the ideal value of all religious histories, myths, mysteries, and ordinances. Mythologies were held to be popular presentiments of religious ideas originally revealed, 
and Christianity was believed to be the full revelation of the deeper truth embedded more or less in every religion. The faith of Christianity was indeed treated as if it had little or no connection with historic fact, and almost as though it were an ideal system evolved from the brain of a philosopher. The Gnostic claimed to be not only the philosophical Christian who evolved truth out of thought, but also to be the depository of a secret tradition upon which his system was primarily constructed. Prior to about the middle of the second century, the Gnostics were not considered heretical, but the subsequent history of ecclesiasticism unhappily resolves largely into a record of the ghastly and protracted struggle between the spirituality of Gnosticism and the literalism of official Christianity. It was a contest in which Gnosticism in its varied phases was nominally extinguished, and ecclesiasticism was ostensibly triumphant. By the end of the 6th century, Gnosticism disappears from history, being supposedly crushed out of existence. Seemingly, however, it simply dived underground and continued to flourish sub rosa, It is in the ancient cemeteries of province that one still finds the greatest number of Gnostic medallions. Gnosticism, says King, early took root and flourished in southern Gaul, as the treatise of Arrhenius directed against it attests. In 1135-1204, materialistic rationalism attained probably its climax in the system of Mamonides, who recognized only the primary or literal sense of the scriptures and dismissed as a fantastic dream all existing allegorical interpretations. Mr. Bernard Pick states, A reaction came and the Kabbalah stepped in as a counterpoise to the growing shallowness of the Mammonist philosophy. The storm against his system broke out in province and spread over Spain. The extended hand marked Foy, see figure 1327, The symbol of fidelity or faith maintained is a 16th century provincial paper mark, and it is logical to surmise that the faith there maintained with the traditional faith of that long-suffering, blood-sodden district, and that the marks put into paper were a continuance of the traditional Gnostic system of intercommunication. Their ideas, says King, were communicated to those initiated by composite figures and sigils, having a voice to the wise, but which the vulgar heareth not. Note. Like its forerunner the Gnosis, the Kabbalah of the Middle Ages was the secret science of wisdom, and its adherents delighted in terming themselves intelligent and connoisseurs of secret wisdom. The Kabbalah. Bernard Pick. The Open Court, 1910, page 146, the Kabbalah, said Ruchelin, is nothing else than symbolic theology, in which not only are letters and words symbols of things, but things are symbols of other things. This Kabbalistic method of interpretation was held to have been originally communicated by revelation, in order that persons of holy life might by it attain to a mystical communion with God or deification. Christian Mysticism Many of these Gnostic symbols figure at the present day among the insignia of Freemasonry, and it is probable that Freemasonry is the last depository of traditions that were taken over by them from the secret societies of the Middle Ages. The course of these traditions was not improbably by the way of the Templars and the Rosicrucians. 
De Quincey maintained that the latter, when driven out of Germany by persecution, reappeared in England as Freemasons. And Elias Ashmole recorded it in his diary that the symbols and signs of Freemasonry were borrowed partly from the Knight Templars and partly from the Rosicrucians. It is claimed for Freemasonry that it is a beautiful system of morality, veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols, and according to Dr. Oliver, the noble and sublime secrets of which we, Freemasons, are possessed are contained in our traditions, represented by hieroglyphic figures and intimated by our symbolic customs and ceremonies. Again, says Dr. Oliver, we have declared over and over again that the great secret of Christian Freemasonry is the practice of morality and virtue, here as a preparation for happiness in another world. Whatever may have been its origin and purpose, Freemasonry spread rapidly over Europe, notwithstanding the bitter opposition of the Church of Rome. In 1738, at the instigation of the Inquisition, terrible anathemas were fulminated against it. All Freemasons were excommunicated, and the penalty of death was decreed against them. Many of the trademarks illustrated in the following pages are obviously Masonic emblems. Whence it may be inferred that among the initiates of Freemasonry were numerous working and wayfaring men. The ramifications of the medieval secret societies upon which Freemasonry was built, the amazing vitality of tradition added to the disseminating powers of itinerant apostles and wandering minstrels, all no doubt served to keep alive the smoldering embers of what at one time must have been a brilliant and highly developed philosophy. The aim and intention of the famous printer whose mark is reproduced herewith was evidently to carry on the traditional great wisdom, whose emblem, the serpent, surrounds a pair of storks. These birds symbolized filial piety by reason of the care and solicitude which they were supposed to exercise towards aged storks. And filial piety, as defined by Confucius, an expert on that subject, means carrying on the aims of our forefathers. Note, Giles, H.A., Religions of Ancient China, page 32. It is not improbable that this notion of doing as our fathers have done is the explanation of the nursery lore, that it is the storks who bring the babies. But after making all reasonable allowance for the force of tradition, it is still exceedingly difficult to account for the recondite knowledge unquestionably possessed by the mystics of the Dark Ages. It will be evident that not only the meanings of Egyptian symbols, such as the scarab, the sail, and the buckle were perfectly understood, but also that the intimate relation between symbolism and word origins was correctly appreciated. Although etymologists are agreed that language is fossil poetry, and that the creation of every word was originally a poem embodying a bold metaphor or a bright conception, it is quite unrealized how close and intimate a relation exists between symbolism and philology. But as Renouf points out, it is not improbable that the cat in Egyptian Mao became the symbol of the sun god or day because the word Mao also means light. Renouf likewise notes that not only was Ra the name of the sun god, but that it was also the usual Egyptian word for sun. Similarly, the goose, one of the symbols of Seb, was called a Seb. The crocodile, one of the symbols of Sebek, was called a Sebek. 
The ibis, one of the symbols of teku, was called teku. And the jackal, one of the symbols of ampu, anubis, was called an ampu. Parallels to this Egyptian custom are also traceable in Europe, where among the Greeks, the word psyche served not only to denote the soul, but also the butterfly, a symbol of the soul. And the word malita served both as the name of a goddess and of her symbol, the bee. Among the ancient Scandinavians, the bull, one of the symbols of Thor, was named a Thor. This being an example, according to Dr. Alexander Wilder, of the punning so common in those times, often making us uncertain whether the accident of a similar name or sound led to the adoption as a symbol or was merely a blunder. I was unaware that there was any ancient warrant for what I suppose to be the novel supposition that in many instances the names of once sacred animals contain within themselves the key to what was originally symbolized. Note on the origin and growth of religion as illustrated by the religion of ancient Egypt. Hebert Lectures. Symbolical Language of Ancient Art and Mythology. R. Payne Knight. The idea that identities of name were primarily due to punning, to blunder, or to accident, must be dispelled when we find that, as in most of the examples noted by myself, the symbolic value of the animal is not expressed by a homonym or pun, but in monosyllables that apparently are the debris of some marvelously ancient, prehistoric, almost extinct parent tongue. Modern language is a mosaic in which lie embedded the chips and fossils of predecessors, in comparison with whose vast antiquity Sanskrit is but a speech of yesterday. In its glacier-like progress, language must have brought down along the ages the detritus of tongues that were spoken possibly millions of years before the art of recording by writing was discovered, but which, notwithstanding, were indelibly inscribed and faithfully preserved in the form of mountain, river, and country names. Empires may disappear and nations may be sunk into oblivion under successive waves of invasion, but place names and proper names preserved traditionally by word of mouth remain to some extent inviolate. And it is, I am convinced, in this direction that one must look for the hypothetical mother tongue of the hypothetical people, known nowadays as Aryans. The primal roots, which seem to be traceable in directions far wider than any yet reconnoitered, are the Semitic El, meaning God, and power the Semitic Ur, meaning fire or light, the Semitic Yah or Yah or Ayah, meaning thou art, or the ever-existent, the Sanskrit D, meaning brilliant, and the Hindu Om or Om, meaning the sun. It is also evident that Pa and Ma, meaning apparent, were once widely extensive, and in addition to the foregoing, I have, I believe, by the comparative method, recovered from antiquity the root Ak apparently once meaning great or mighty. The syllable Ak first came under my attention in connection with the Hawkpen Hill at Avebury in Wiltshire. On a spur of this hill stood the ruined remains of the head of the colossal rock temple that once stretched in the form of a serpent over three miles of country. As pen notoriously meant head, it occurred to me that Hawkpen might originally have been equivalent to great head 
a supposition that derives some sort from the names Karnak in Brittany and Karnak in Egypt. At both these spots, as at Avebury, are the ruins of prodigious temples, and the usual rule that temple sites were primarily burial sites seemed easily and legitimately to resolve the two Karnaks into Karnak, the great Karn, or heap of stones covering a grave. One of the greatest stones at Karnak in Brittany is known as Manak, and one of the longship rocks lying off Land's End is named Manak. As men was Celtic for stone, the name Menak in both these instances seemingly meant great stone. There was also at Karnak a gigantic tumulus named Thumiak, seemingly a combination of Thum, the Celtic for hillock, and Ak, great. The irresistible children of Anak are mentioned in Deuteronomy as great and tall. And they were counted giants. Castor and Pollux, whose appellation in certain places was great gods, were in Greece denominated Anakis. Anak was the Phoenician term for a prince, and Anax is the Greek for prince. One of the Sanskrit words for king is Ganaka, and we find Ak occurring persistently and almost universally in divine and kingly titles. As for example, in Akbar, still meaning the great, in Cormac, the magnificent, the High King of Ireland. Note, this name is supposed to mean son of a chariot, which is very unconvincing. I have not thought it necessary everywhere to contrast current opinions with my own suggestions. In Balak, King of Moab. In Shishak, who deposed Rehoboam. In Zdak, the Chaldean great messenger. In Odakon, a form of the Babylonish Dagon and in Hakon, the name of the present king of Norway, Hakon or Hakon, cognate with the German name Hako, which is defined by dictionaries as meaning high kin, must be allied to the Greek word archon, and now meaning supreme ruler, but primarily, I think, great one. The Ark of Archon survives in our English monarch and archangel. It occurs in the royal names Archelaus, Archidemus and Arcus, and may probably be equated with the guttural Ock of the famous Gwanak, the giant, who figures in Arthurian legend. The Greek words for chief are Arcos and Actor, and these, like Anak, a prince, and Archon, a ruler, meant once, in all probability, great one. In our major and mayor, we have parallel instances of titles, primarily traceable to great, and in the center of Magnus, there is recognizable the primordial ak blunted into og. The word maximus is phonetically maximus. The nobles or great men of Peru were known as curacas. The ancient name for Mexico was anahuac. And in the time of Cortes, there was a native tradition that Anahuac was originally inhabited by giants. The giant serpent of South America is known as the Anaconda, and the topmost peak of the Andes is named Aconagua. In Peru, according to Prescott, the word Capac meant great or powerful, and the supreme being, the creator of the universe, was adored under the name of Pacacmuc. 
the triple ock occurring, and this word suggests that it was equivalent to Trismegistus, or thrice great. One of the appellations of Juno was Acrea, i.e. the great Rhea, the magna mater of the gods. The Assyrian Jupiter was entitled Merodach, and the radical Ak is the earliest form of our English oak, sacred to Jupiter, and once worshipped as the greatest and the strongest of the trees. The East Indian jock fruit is described in Dr. Murray's New English Dictionary as enormous and monstrous. The giant ox, the largest animal of Tibet, is named a yak. The earliest form of Bacchus, who was symbolized by an ox, was Ayakos, and we again meet with Ak in the hero names Heracles and Achilles. At Achilles Head in Ireland, a giant hill upwards of 2,000 feet high presents to the sea a sheer precipice from its peak to its base, and the most impressive, if not actually the loftiest, of the cliffs around Land's End is still known locally as Hordanak. In Zodiac, the great zone of Dai, the brilliant light, and in other instances noted hereafter, we again meet seemingly with the prehistoric Ak used in the sense I have suggested. These and kindred inferences may be due to fantasy or coincidence, but the validity of some of my philological conclusions is strengthened, if not verified, by the fact that they were formulated almost against my common sense and before I had any conception that there were any ancient warrant for them. It is said that the devil once tried to fathom the Basque language, and at the end of six months had successfully mastered one word. This was written Nebuchadnezzar and pronounced something like Sennacherib. I am, of course, fully aware how dangerous a ground I am treading, and how open many of my positions are to attack, yet it has seemed to me better to run some risk of ridicule rather than by overcaution to ignore and suppress clues which under more accomplished hands may yield discoveries of high and wide interest, and even bring into fresh focus the science of anthropology. The singularity, the novelty, and the almost impregnable strength of my position lies in the fact that every idea which I venture to propound, even such kindergarten notions as the symbolism of rakes, snails, cucumbers, and sausages, is based upon material evidence that such were unquestionably once prevalent. The printer's emblems are reproduced in facsimile from books mostly in my possession. The outline drawings are half-size reproductions of watermarks, some from my own collection, but mainly from Monsieur Briquet's monumental Le Filigranes, Dictionnaire Historique de Marquis de Pépia, de leur apparition version 1282-1600. to with 39 figures dans le texte, 16,112 facsimiles de filigranes. Four volumes, folio, Bernard Quaritch, 1907. Chapter 2. The Parable of the Pilgrim. The Bohemian Brethren, the Sword of the Spirit, the Helmet of Salvation, the Staff of Faith, the Girdle of Righteousness, the wings of aspiration, the spectacles of the Holy Ghost, the unicorn, the fleur-de-lis, Lux Luce in Tenebris, 
the candle of the Lord, the anointed of the light, the invulnerable shield and buckler, the dolphin, the bondage of ignorance, the liberty of light. Give me my scallop shell of quiet, my staff of faith to walk upon, my script of joy, immortal diet, my bottle of salvation, my gown of glory, hope's true gauge, and thus I'll take my pilgrimage. Sir Walter Raleigh The notion that life is a pilgrimage and every man a pilgrim is common to most peoples and climes. And allegories on this subject are well-nigh universal. In 1631, one of them was written in Bohemia under the title of The Labyrinth of the World and the Paradise of the Heart. Its author was John Amos Komensky, 1592-1670, a leader of the sectarians known among themselves as the Unity, or Brethren, and to history as the Bohemian Brethren, or the Moravian Brothers. These long-suffering enthusiasts were obviously a manifestation of that spirit of mysticism which, either active or somnolent, is traceable from the dawn of history, and will be found noted under such epithets as Essenes, Therapeutics, Gnostics, Montanists, Politians, Manichees, Cathari, Vaudois, Albigeois, Paterini, Lollards, Friends of God, Spiritualists, Arnoldists, Fatricelli, Anabaptists, Quakers, and many others. The labyrinth of the world was condemned as heretical, and until 1820 was included among the lists of dangerous and forbidden books. Count Lutzo, to whom English readers are indebted for an admirable translation, states that so congenial was its mysticism that the many Bohemian exiles who were driven on account of their faith from their beloved country carried the labyrinth with them and that it was often practically their sole possession. In Bohemia itself, the book being prohibited, the few copies that escaped destruction passed from hand to hand secretly, and were safely hidden in the cottages of the peasants. The author of The Pilgrim's Progress was a persecuted Baptist tinker, and among the pathetic records of continental Anabaptism will be found the continually expressed conviction we must in this world suffer, for Paul has said that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. We must completely conquer the world, sin, death, and the devil, not with material swords and spears, but with the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and with the shield of faith, wherewith we must quench all sharp and fiery darts, and place on our heads the helmet of salvation, with the armor of righteousness, and our feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel. Being thus strengthened with these weapons, we shall, with Israel, get through the wilderness, suppose and overcome all our enemies. In 1550, another obscure Anabaptist under sentence for death, for heresy, exclaimed, It is not for the sake of party or for conspiracy that we suffer. We seek not to contest with any sword, but that of the Spirit, that is, the Word of God. These pious convictions are seen to be expressed in the trademark emblems herewith representing the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation. Almost equally familiar are the pilgrim symbols here below. Figure 6 is the scourge of discipline. Figure 7, the girdle of righteousness. Figure 8, the staff of faith. Figure 10, the scallop shell. Figures 12 and 13, the bottle of salvation. And figure 14, the well of salvation. Wherefrom with joy shall ye draw water. Note. 
Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Isaiah 11.5 In the labyrinth of the world, Komensky furnishes his pilgrim with certain implements in addition to the conventional equipment, and among them are the wings of aspiration herewith represented. He makes Christ to say, My son, I dwell in two spots, in heaven in my glory, and on earth in the hearts of the humble. And I desire that henceforth thou also shouldest have two dwelling places, one here at home where I have promised to be with thee, the other with me in heaven. That thou mayest raise thyself thither, I give thee these wings, which are the desire of eternal happiness and prayer. If thou dost will it, thou shalt be able to fly upward unto me, and thou shalt have delight in me, and I in thee. When Komensky's hero started on his quest through the city of Queen Vanity, his guide Falsehood endeavored to blind him to true reality by fitting him with certain falsifying glasses. These spectacles, as I afterwards understood, were fashioned out of the glass of illusion, and the rims which they were set in were of that horn which is named Custom. These distorting glasses of conventionality showed everything in sham colors, foul as fair and black as white. And it was only when the pilgrim emerged from Vanity Fair and turned towards Christ that he rid himself of his misleading encumbrances. Then, in lieu of the spectacles of custom, Christ bestowed upon him certain holy spectacles, of which the outward border was the word of God, and the glass within it was the Holy Ghost. These sacred spectacles, of which some are illustrated herewith, possessed a fairy-like faculty to reveal surprising wonders. Among others, they enabled the pilgrim to perceive and recognize hitherto unseen fellow Puritans dwelling here and there dispersed and unsuspected in the world. In early Christian and pre-Christian times, the symbol of purity was the unicorn, and this trademark had an extensive vogue, M. Bruquet registering 1133 examples among papermakers alone. Even today, an ancient unicorn, which has evidently drifted down with the tide of time, may be seen in use as a sign outside a druggist's shop in Antwerp, and a well-known firm of English chemists employ the same emblem as its trademark. Once, evidently, a mute claim to purity of drugs. In each case, the sign, having outlived its century, has survived as a mere convention, a form from which the spirit has long since flown. Among the Puritan papermakers and printers of the Middle Ages, the unicorn served obviously as an emblem, not of material, but of moral purity. As a rule, the animal is found without any telltale indications of its meaning. But the few examples here reproduced betray their symbolic character. One of the generic terms under which the Puritans of the Middle Ages were designated was Cathari, i.e., the pure ones. In figure 25, the Puritan unicorn is represented as feeding upon a fleur-de-lis, which, as an emblem of the Trinity, is one of the few survivals still employed in Christian ecclesiology. In figure 26, it is sanctified by a cross, and in figure 27 is lettered with the initials I.S., standing for Jesus Salvator, the way, the truth, and the life. The possible objection that Latin was a language above the comprehension of the artisan classes may be discounted by the testimony of Dethu. 
who wrote in 1556 with reference to the Vaudois, notwithstanding their squalidness, it is surprising that they are very far from being uncultivated in their morals. They almost all understand Latin and are able to write fairly enough. The motto of the Italian Vaudois was Lux Luce in Tenebri, and this light shining uncomprehended in the darkness was like Christ, the light of the world, symbolized by the fleur de lis. In figure 27a, the fleur de luce, or flower of light, is represented flaming with a halo, and in figures 27b and 28, it is shown budding and extending in all directions. The English printer John Day, comparing the darkness of the preceding period with his own times of pure enlightenment, adopted as a trademark the pithy insinuation to the reader, Arise, for it is day. And in the similar spirit, the printer John White employed as his device the portrait of himself carrying Scientia, with the motto, Welcome the white that bringeth such light. Sometimes the light was symbolized by a candlestick, as in the examples herewith. Figure 30 is surmounted by a cross. In figure 31, the light is represented by a star cross, or letter X. Into the form of this X, the mystics read the letters LVX, so that it formed an ingenious rebus, or monogram, of the word Lux. The following designs represent Jesus Christ, the anointed of the light. Monsieur Briquet has collected many specimens of these effigies, all of which are distinguished by three locks of hair, the three evidently being intended to symbolize Christ's oneness with the Trinity. In figure 33 and 34, light, denoted by Lux Cross, is proceeding out of the mouth, and the anointing of the light is unmistakably indicated in figure 33 by the position of the Lux on the locks of hair. There is a size of paper known to this day as Jesus, and as most of the technical terms of the paper trade owe their origin to primitive watermarks, it may safely be inferred that the designs now under consideration are the source of the term Jesus. God, says Komansky, is our shield, and the designs herewith represent the invulnerable shield and buckler. The letter IHS on figure 35 are the well-known initials usually misread to indicate Jesus Homonym Salvator. On figure 36 is the fleur de lis and IS of Jesus Salvator. And on figures 38 and 39, Christ is represented by a fish. This was a symbol much used by the primitive Christians in the catacombs and its popularity was due partly to the fact that the letters of the Greek word for fish yielded the initials of the sentence, Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Savior. The fish often takes the form of a dolphin, which was anciently regarded as the special friend of man. Among the Greeks, the dolphin was venerated as the savior of the shipwrecked, and this special quality as a savior made it a favorite fish emblem with the Christians. A dolphin was the arms of the French province of Dauphiny, which district was the headquarters of the Vaudois. The designer of the candlestick below has adopted the motto, I am spent in others' service, and the aim of the mystic has always been to lead his fellows from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the children of light. The emblem of the Italian Vaudois was a burning candle standing in a candlestick surmounted by seven stars and lettered underneath, Lux 
Lucet in Tenebris. Men can only be happy, says Eckhart Schausen. When the bandage which intercepts the true light falls from their eyes, when the fetters of slavery are loosed from their hearts, the blind must see, the lame must walk, before happiness can be understood. But the great and all-powerful law to which the felicity of man is indissolubly attached is one following. Man, let reason rule over your passions. Where he asks is the man that has no passions. Let him show himself. Do we not all wear the chains of sensuality more or less heavily? Are we not all slaves, all sinners? This realization of our low estate excites in us the desire for redemption. We lift our eyes on high. The designs herewith portray every man as this dolorous slave. In figure 45, he is seen languishing in the bonds of wretchedness towards a perfection that is symbolized by the circle over his head. Only the perfect can bring anything to perfection, continues Eckhart Schausen. There is but one who is able to open our inner eyes so that we may behold truth, but one who can set us free from the bonds of sensuality. This one is Jesus Christ, the Savior of man, the Savior because he wishes to extricate us from the consequences which follow the blindness of our natural reason. By the power of Jesus Christ, the hoodwink of ignorance falls from our eyes, the bonds of sensuality break, and we rejoice in the liberty of God's children. It will be noticed that in all these slave designs, the bandage has been pushed up from over the eyes. In figure 49, the hoodwink of ignorance has completely disappeared, and the enlightened slave is gaping with an expression of astonishment and wonder. In figures 50 and 51, the disbanded figure, now weeping apparently with joy, is crowned, in one case with the rose of bliss, in the other with the cross of salvation, the crown of lux, and the circle of perfection. Doubtless these emblems represent the fulfillment of the promise. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, and they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Chapter 3 The Ways of Ascent The Ladder of Perfection The Pole Star The Delectable Mountain Work as Prayer The Sail The Dove the rebirth, antiquity of the idea, the serpent of regeneration, the way of purity, the stag, the way of justice, the scales, the number eight, the way of charity, the heart, the way of humility, the ass, the way of hope, the anchor, the way of unflagging toil, the ox, my soul like quiet palmer, Traveleth towards the land of heaven, over the silver mountains where spring the nectar fountains. Sir Walter Raleigh And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Isaiah One might indefinitely multiply the symbols under which allegory has veiled the quest of the ideal and almost as multifarious are the forms under which the symbolists express their conceptions of the vision beautiful. The accompanying designs represent the ascent of the soul by means of the ladder of perfection. The time-honored Scala Perfectionae of mysticism, 
from Plotinus downward, there has been a persistent preaching of this ladder of the virtues. Our teaching, says Plotinus, reaches only so far as to indicate the way in which the soul should go, but the vision itself must be the soul's own achievement. The latter was a favorite emblem of the roadway of the gods because it depicted a gradual ascent in goodness, a progress step by step and line upon line towards perfection. Dante records the vision. I saw reared up in color like to sun-illumined gold, a ladder which my ken pursued in vain, so lofty was the summit. The sanctity of the emblems herewith is indicated by the angel on the top of figure 53 and by the cross surmounting figure 52. The goal of ascent is expressed in figure 54 by the fleur-de-lis of light, and in figure 55 by a star, the vision of Christ, the bright and morning star. It was a vaudois tenet that Jesus Christ, whom all things obey, is our pole star, and the only star that we ought to follow, which idea is doubtless expressed in the crowned and long-tailed star herewith. The vaudois also regarded Christ as a stag, and their pastors at Chamois, who leaped from virtue to virtue. The letters I.S. imply that the meaning of the design herewith is to be found in the passage, The day star arises in men's hearts, yea, the day breaks and the shadows flee away, and Christ comes as swift roe and young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Monsieur Burquette, reproduces upwards of 300 devices, dating from 1318, which he describes as mounts, mountains, or hills. They are emblems of what Bunyan terms the delectable mountains. In other words, those holy hills to which the psalmist lifted his eyes, and which, according to Obadiah, dropped sweet wine. The mystics glorified in the belief that they walked with the Lord, treading and tripping over the pleasant mountains of the heavenly land and their eyes were strained, persevering eastwards in expectation of Christ's speedy coming over the hills of Bether. In allegory, hills or mountains very frequently imply meditation and heavenly communion, and for this reason the legend runs that the Holy Grail was preserved on the summit of Mont Sabat, the mountain of salvation. The mountains of myrrh and the hills of frankincense, to which the writer of the Song of Solomon says he will retreat, are ideally the same as those silver mountains over which, according to Sir Walter Raleigh, my soul, like quiet palmer, traveleth towards the land of heaven. In emblem, they were represented as three, five, or six, but most usually as three. Among the Jews, the three-peaked Mount Olivet was esteemed to be holy and accounted to be the residence of the deity. Mount Meru, the Indian holy mountain, was said to have three peaks composed of gold, silver, and iron. And by Hindus, Tartars, Manchurians, and Mongols, Mount Meru was venerated as the dwelling place of the Trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. The fleur-de-lis of light poised over figure 64 is an ideograph of the words, As a spirit before our face is Christ the Lord, who will lead us to the tops of the mountains in the bonds of charity. This passage is from the Holy Converse of St. Francis of Assisi. If, as is supposed, Francis was the son of Vaudois, it will account for his ardent practice of the Waldenesian tenet, work is prayer. I was ever, said he, in the habit of working with mine own hands, and it is my firm wish that all other brethren work also. 
Francis reversed the traditional idea that the church alone could save men's souls by acting on the behalf that the church itself was to be saved by the faith and work of the people. A subsequent development of the movement was the formation of the Allied Order of Tertiaries, i.e. working men and women who maintained the spirit of his rule, at the same time carrying on their worldly occupations. The most important feature of this movement, says Dr. Rufus M. Jones, was the cultivation of a group spirit and the formation of a system of organization among the artisans and working men which developed into one of the powerful forces that finally led to the disintegration of the feudal system. There is thus an obvious probability of meeting with Franciscan mysticism expressed in the marks and ciphers of contemporary craftsmen. Figure 65a is a printer's device, and figures 67, 83, and 84 are copied from examples of 17th century domestic stained glass exhibited in the Musée Cluny at Paris. In figure 66, the circle is again the symbol of perfection. The mystic loved to meditate upon the supreme point of perfection, and to the best of his ability followed the injunction, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The initial Z surmounting figure 67 here stands for Zion, the beauty of perfection. And the monogram IS in figure 68 represents Jesus Salvator the promised Deliverer. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Over figure 60 was the star and cross of the expected Messiah. On figures 69 and 70 is the crown of bliss. And the fluttering eagle in figure 71 represents the promise, they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with the wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The sail, surmounting figure 72, is a rare but unmistakable emblem of the Holy Spirit. Spiritus primarily means breath or wind, an element which the emblem maker could only express by depicting some such object as a sail, which catches and unfolds the wind. To convey this same idea of the spirit dwelling on the mountaintops, the divisor of figures 73 and 74 has employed the familiar symbol of the dove. The followers of the Holy Spirit were themselves considered to be doves, an idea fostered by the injunction, Be harmless as doves. In the holy converse between St. Francis and the Lady Poverty, it is recorded that certain men all began at once to follow after the blessed Francis, and whilst with most easy steps they were hastened to the heights, behold the Lady Poverty standing on the top of the selfsame mountain, looked down over the steeps of the hill, and seeing those men so stoutly climbing, nay, flying up, winged by aspiration, she wondered greatly and said, Who are these who come flying like clouds and like doves to their windows? And behold, a voice came to her and said, Be not afraid, O daughter of Zion, for these men are the seed whom the Lord hath blessed and chosen in love unfeigned. So lying back on the throne of her nakedness did the Lady Poverty present them with the blessings of sweetness, and said to them, What is the cause of your coming? Tell me, my brothers. And why hasten ye so from the veil of tears to the mount of light? In figures 75 and 76 is shown the mount of light with the cross of Lux upon its summit, and surmounting figure 77 is the device of a dove flying heavenward. We come to the Our Lady Poverty, 
continues the writer of the Holy Converse, and we beseech thee receive us unto thee in peace. We desire to become bondservants of the Lord of virtue, because he is the King of glory. We have heard that thou art Queen of virtue, and in some wise have learned it by trial. Wherefore, fallen at your feet, we entreat thee humbly to deign to be with us, and to be unto us a way of attaining unto the King of glory. Only admit us to thy peace, and we shall be saved, that through thee he may receive us, who through thee has redeemed us. The expression redeemed has always possessed among mystics a meaning somewhat different from that which popular obtains. Redemption was believed to be not an act of unconditional mercy or an immediate losing of one's guilty stains by a sudden plunge into the fountain of Emmanuel's blood, but rather a gradual and progressive process, a slow growth and expansion of man's spiritual faculties. That man is no Christian, wrote a well-known mystic, who doth merely comfort himself with the suffering, death, and satisfaction of Christ, and doth impute it to himself as a gift of favor remaining himself still a wild beast and unregenerate. If this said sacrifice is to avail for me, it must be wrought in me. The father must beget his son in my desire of faith. Mysticism has universally taught that every man has within himself the germs or seeds of divinity, and that by self-conquest these sparks of heaven may be fanned into a flame, the flame into a fire, the fire into a star, and the star into a sun. The Spirit of Christ was regarded as a star dawning in the darkness of the soul, a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. The ideal of Paul and of his mystic followers in general was Christ in you, and every man perfect in Jesus Christ. And this ideal was fostered by mysticism centuries before Paul was born or Christianity dawned upon the world. Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, says the poet who wrote the 82nd Psalm, and he prefaces the assertion by the lament, They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. No one knows when or where the idea of rebirth had its origin. Forty centuries ago it was current in India, whither it had probably traveled from Chaldea. In an Egyptian document assigned to the 3rd century before Christ, there occurs the question and the answer, Who is the author of rebirth? The Son of God, the one man, by God's will. The same document teaches that no one can be saved without rebirth, that the material body perceived by the senses is not to be confused with the spiritual and essential body that to reach rebirth one must conquer the bodily senses, develop the inward faculties, and resolutely exert one's willpower, whereupon divinity shall come to birth. Dost thou not know, continues the Egyptian philosopher, thou hast been born a god, son of the one? This ancient hymn of the rebirth was to be recited in the open air, facing southwest at sunset and towards the east at sunrise and the doctrine was to be kept secret or esoteric. One of the first experiences in Komensky's pilgrim is his instruction by Christ upon the necessity of being born again. On being equipped with the spectacles of the Holy Spirit, he is told to pass by again the spots where previously he had gone astray. 
he enters a church that was named Christianity, and seeing within its innermost portion what seemed to be a curtained or screened chancel, he immediately approached it, heeding not those sectarians who were wrangling in the aisles. From within the veiled shrine which he perceived was the truth of Christianity, there flashed light and was wafted fragrance, yet to the pilgrim's astonishment thousands of men passed by the sanctuary and did not enter it. I saw also that many who were learned in scripture, priests, bishops, and others who thought highly of their holiness, went around the sanctuary. Some indeed looked in but did not enter, and this also appeared mournful unto me. The Egyptian philosopher already quoted wrote of the rebirth. Whenever I see within myself the sincere vision brought to birth out of God's mercy, I have passed through myself into a body that can never die. And now I am not what I was before, but I am born in mind. This is paralleled by Komensky's assertion. He, however, who has passed through the innermost portal becomes somewhat different from other men. He is full of bliss, joy, and peace. To attain to this beatitude of renaissance or regeneration was the world-old goal of mysticism. To be reborn, says Eckharthausen, means to return to a world where the spirit of wisdom and love governs, where animal man obeys. The Gothic R poised on the mountains in figure 79 was the initial and the symbol of regeneratio. The serpent coiled upon the cross, as in figures 80 and 81, was also a symbol of regeneration or salvation, from the fact that this reptile periodically sloughs its skin and is born anew. The meaning of the serpent symbol is clenched in figure 80 by the addition of the letter R, this being one of those cases where inscriptions are placed above the pictures in order that the letter may explain what the hand has depicted. The trifoil surmounting figure 82 is a widely acknowledged emblem of the Trinity. Placed thus upon the summit of the holy hills, it indicates the three loaves of the knowledge of the Trinity, in which consists the final felicity of every sojourner below. The morning star and Christ, the fish, need no elucidation. The crescent moon surmounting figs, 84 and 85, was a symbol of the land of heaven and was used with this import by the early Christians of the catacombs. But emblems of the contemplative life are relatively infrequent in comparison with those representing the active virtues. Each of the various virtues and graces had its own distinctive symbol, by means of which were expressed the several ways of ascent. The first of the ways was purity and aspiration. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? asks the psalmist, and the condition follows. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. The way of solitude and purity was symbolized by the stag, which was also regarded as a type of religious aspiration, probably from the passage in the Psalms, Like as the heart panteth for the water brooks. There was an old belief that the stag, though a timorous creature, had a ruthless antipathy to snakes, which it labored to destroy. Hence it came to be regarded as an apt emblem of the Christian fighting against evils. A second way was justice. The just Lord loveth justice, and the path of the just as a shining light shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The reader will be familiar with the emblems surmounting the scales of justice here illustrated. Note how ingeniously the spirit of love has been indicated by the heart shape of the dove's wing in figure 93. 
The number eight surmounting figure 90 has, from most ancient times, been the emblem of regeneration. In Egypt, it was one of the symbols of Thoth, the reformer and regenerator who poured the waters of purification on the heads of the initiated. According to Swedenborg, eight corresponds to purification, and the octagonal form of Christian fonts is said to have arisen from this symbolic cause. Komensky maintains that the creed of the true Christianity is summed up in two words, that everyone should love God above all things that can be named, and that he should sincerely wish well to his fellow men as to himself. This way of love was symbolized by the heart, which in figure 98 is portrayed flaming with the ardent fire of charity. The flowers blossoming from the heart in figure 104 were the emblems of good works. Flowers, as Durandus says, being portrayed to represent the fruit of good works springing from the roots of virtue. A fourth way was humility. Note, the following expressions of this golden rule prove that it is universal and belongs to no time or sect. Do as you would be done by, Persian. Do not that to a neighbor which you would take ill from him, Grecian. What you would not wish done to yourself, do not unto others, Chinese. One should seek for others the happiness one desires for oneself, Buddhist. He sought for others the good he desired for himself. Let him pass on, Egyptian. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, Christian. Let none of you treat his brother in a way he himself would dislike to be treated, Mohammedan. The true rule in life is to guard and to do by the things of others as they do by their own, Hindu. The law imprinted on the hearts of men is to love the members of society as themselves, Roman. Whatsoever you do not wish your neighbor to do to you, do not unto him. This is the whole law. The rest is a mere exposition of it. Jewish, from the Svastika. He hath shewed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? The symbol of humility and patient endurance was the ass, and by the cross of Lux on its forehead was implied, It is humility that must fasten you to God, and that will keep you in a constant adherence to him. The wheel surmounting figs 106 and 107 was the emblem of divine reunion. As the innumerable rays of the circle are united in one single center, so as the mind mounts upward, so differences of sect lose their bitterness and merge into the axle tree of Christ. A fifth way was hope, the anchor of the soul. The designers of figs 108 to 115 probably had in their minds the words of Paul. We might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made as high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The initials I see on figure 114 signify Jesus Christ who was regarded not only as the way, but also as the goal of attainment. In figure 115, the anchor and star appear in this latter sense surmounting the holy hills. 
Komensky comments upon what he calls the blessed servitude of the sons of God. By the aid of his holy spectacles, the pilgrim was able to perceive that the invisible Christians willingly took upon themselves humble and mean services, and that if they could but see a way in which their fellow men might be benefited, they did not hesitate and did not delay. Nor did they extol the services they had rendered, nor remind others of them. But whether they met with gratitude or ingratitude, continued serving quietly and gaily. The symbol of disinterested toil and indefatigable fellow service was the ox, which, according to Holm, was emblematic of all who patiently bear the yoke and labor in silence for the good of others. Monsieur Briquet reproduces nearly 1,500 varieties of the ox watermark in use between the years 1321 and 1600 and commenting upon its strange multiplication in Italy, France, and Germany, observes, The fact of its wide popularity is real, but its cause is unknown. The sign of the ox occurs not infrequently unadorned, when it may be read like the motto in figure 44. I am spent in others' service, but as a rule it is combined with some supplementary symbol or symbols of the vision. The object surmounting figure 127 is the sangral which according to tradition was the cup used at the Last Supper and subsequently by Joseph of Arimathea to catch the blood flowing from the crucified Savior's side. Mr. A. E. Waite considers the various versions of the quest for the lost grail as mirrors of spiritual chivalry, mirrors of perfection, pageants of the mystic life, as the teaching of the church spiritualized and as offering in romance from a presentation of All Souls Chronicle. Note, the hidden church of the Holy Grail, its legends and symbolism considered in their affinity with certain mysteries of initiation and other traces of a secret tradition in Christian times. In the example of the Grail here illustrated, the new wine of God's kingdom is symbolized by the clustering grapes. By the variety of St. Grail emblems is practically endless, each symbolist depicting his vision according to his preference. The mystics beheld themselves as an unbroken procession of human temples, and the Holy Grail for which each strove was the ever-expanding ideal of his own aspirations. The roadways to the quest thus far illustrated have been purity and aspiration, justice, charity, humility, hope, and unselfish service. There are still one or two others yet to be considered, but symbols of the more conventional schemes of salvation are noticeably absent. The crucifix does not occur in watermark, nor do any emblems that can be read to imply justification by faith, salvation by blood, or indeed by anything in the nature of a vicarious atonement. The cause lies in the fact that these popular paths were regarded by the mystics as misleading, and for that reason were not mapped out in emblems. King Arthur says, Spake I not truly, O my knights? Was I too dark a prophet when I said, to those who went upon the holy quest, that most of them would follow wandering fires lost in the quagmire? Dr. Patrick, 1626-1707, expresses the traditional doctrine of mysticism in his once popular but now neglected parable of the pilgrim where he says that the only faith which will carry us to Jerusalem is conformity to the ethics of Jesus. But if I may be so bold as to interpose a question, said the inquirer, I pray satisfy me 
why you call this the pilgrim's faith. Is there any else besides? There is, replied his teacher. We meet in this world with a faith more gallant, fine, and delicate than the plain and homely belief which I have described. A modish and courtly faith it is, which sits still, and yet sets you in the lap of Christ. It passes under so many names that I cannot stand to number them all now. It is called a casting of ourselves upon Christ, a relying on his merits, a shrouding ourselves under the robes of his righteousness. And though sometimes it is called a going to him for salvation, yet there is this mystery in the business that you may go and yet not go. You may go and yet stand still. You may cast yourself upon him and not come to him. Or if you take one little step and be at the pains to come to him, the work is done, and you need not follow him. It is indeed a resting, not a traveling grace. I hope your soul will never enter into the secret nor follow the rabble in these groundless fancies. But you will rather put to your hands to pull down that idol of faith which hath been set up with so much devotion, and religiously worshipped so long among us, that dead image of faith which so many have adored, trusted in, and perished. I mean the notion which hath been so zealously advanced, how that believing in nothing else but a relying on Jesus for salvation, a fiducial recumbency upon him, a casting ourselves wholly upon his merits, or an applying of his righteousness to our souls. And if you throw all those other phrases after them, which tell us that it is a taking of Christ, a laying hold of him, a closing with him, or an embracing of him, you shall do the better, and more certainly secure yourself from being deceived. Chapter 4. The Millennium The Globe and Cross, The Messiah, Communism of the Romance of the Rose, The Peasants' War, The Evangelical Christian Brotherhood, The Siege of Munster, By Peace Plenty and by Wisdom Peace, The Standard of Righteousness, The Renaissance, The Forerunner of Pleasant Phoebus, The Portals of the Sky, The Ibis, The Bird of Morning, The Baboon, the hailer of the dawn. Thou hast destroyed it, the beautiful world, with powerful fist, in ruin tis hurled, by the blow of a demigod shattered, the scattered, fragments into the void we carry, deploring, the beauty perished beyond restoring, mightier for the children of men, brightlier, build it again, in thy own bosom build it anew. Goeth. A cardinal doctrine among the mystics was the imminence of the millennium, not the material notion of Christ's descent upon a cloud, the catching upward of 144,000 Christians, and the destruction of this wicked world, but the opinion of origin that, instead of a final and desperate conflict between paganism and Christianity, the millennium would consist of a gradual enlightenment and involuntary homage paid by the secular powers to Christianity. Note. Gibbon observes that the doctrine of Christ's reign upon earth, treated as first as a profound allegory, was considered by degrees as a doubtful and useless opinion, and was at length rejected as the absurd invention of heresy and fanaticism. Decline and Fall, 15. The anticipated reign of God was expressed by a cross-surmounted sphere, and this emblem has been found in paper made as early as 1301. In the course of later centuries, the primitive and simple forms were gradually embellished with supplementary symbols. 
evidence that the spirit underlying these trademarks was not mere mimicry, but a living and intelligent tradition. In figure 128, the ball and cross of the gradual enlightenment appears in the place of the cross of Lux, at the summit of a candlestick. The divisor of figure 129 expressed the universal spread of Christianity, by extending a cross to each of the four quarters of the globe. The initials IC obviously imply Jesus Christ, and in figure 132, the eagerly expected reign of sweetness and light is indicated by the heart and the fleur-de-lis. The kingdom of heaven was frequently pointed by the introduction of a crescent into the circle. The capital A, if with a V-shaped cross stroke, stood frequently for Ave. Note, over the altar to the Virgin of the Church of St. Gudel, Brussels, there appears the cipher herewith that reads forward and backward Ave Maria. And thus, figure 135 may be read as Ave Millenarium, an old-world mode of expressing the aspiration, Thy Kingdom Come. With the globe and cross of the millennium are frequently associated the holy hills, as in the examples below. These emblemize the prophecy, It shall come to pass, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come, and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God for ever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in the Mount Zion, from henceforth, ever, forever. Micah In the above words is portrayed the eagerly expected king who was to rule in Zion. Figure 139 carrying the scales of justice and the sword of the spirit is crowned with a trefoil, and figure 140 bearing the globe and cross is apparently extending one hand in benediction. The scepter borne by figure 141 is tipped significantly with the fleur-de-lis of light. The divisor of figure 142 has indicated the reign of light by the extension, high and low, of the lux cross. The letter R within the circle was the sign of the city regeneration, and the initials IR stood in all probability for Jesus Redemptor. This combined IR in figure 144, it is hallowed by a cross, may be seen carved on a fragment of stone tracing lying today in the garden of the Musée Cluny at Paris, a relic from some ancient rude screen or balustrade. Figure 145 shows the two initials combined into a monogram. And figure 146, which is taken from a specimen of 17th century domestic stained glass, shows a variation of this monogram. 
An 18th century Italian antiquary surmised that the capital M found frequently on ancient gems and signets may have stood for the word millenarium. Note, Gemma Antique Literate, Francisci Ficorini, Rome, 1757. And the fact that this letter is combined frequently with watermarked emblems of the millennium tends to support the supposition. The capital M occurs in paper as early as 1296. At times it was distinguished by a cross. It figures frequently as the goal of ascent, and occasionally it was curiously interblended with the globe and cross and the letter A, as in figures 154 and 155. The prevalence of millennium emblems proves how rife were millenarian ideas. The ambition of medieval mysticism to bring about a purified Christian commonwealth and to overturn what it believed to be the dominion of Antichrist, it emphatically expressed in the Romance of the Rose, where the poet writes, No one apart should claim the fullness of thy heart, but every living man should be joined in one vast fraternity, loving the human race as one, yet giving special love to none. Meet out such measure as ye fain, from others would receive a gain. It is because unrighteous folk refuse to bear the gentle yoke, of this fair love that it hath been, needful to set the judge as screen, to shield the weak against the strong, uphold the right and quell the wrong. These socialistic and utopian ideas were held very widely among the common man of medieval Europe, and it was the attempt of our English lollards to carry them into practical effect that brought down upon lollardry such disastrous and protracted persecution. On the continent, it is surprising that history records no attempt to enforce the millennium by the sword until 1524, when there broke out the abortive revolution known as the Peasants' War. The figure most prominently associated with this movement is Thomas Munzer, a master of arts who founded a secret society at Allstadt, pledged by a solemn oath to labor unceasingly for the promotion of the new kingdom of God on earth a kingdom to be based on the model of the primitive Christian church. Munzer, whose ideas were largely derived from an itinerant weaver who, in the course of his travels, had come under the influence of the Bohemian Brethren, established a special printing press for the dissemination of his views. Inflamed by the preaching of Munzer's apostles and goaded by the oppression of their feudal superiors, the peasantry of Central Europe rose in insurrection and established among themselves an evangelical Christian brotherhood. In their twelve articles, they announced the rights of the common man, condemning the abuses of the times as unbecoming and unbrotherly, churlish and not according to the word of God. Christ, they contended, hath purchased and redeemed us all with his precious blood, the poor hind as well as the highest, none accepted. Therefore do we find in the scripture that we are free, and we will be free. Not that we would be wholly free as having no authority over us, but this God doth not teach us. We shall live in obedience and not in the freedom of our fleshly pride. Shall love God as our Lord, shall esteem our neighbors as brothers, and do to them as we would have them do to us. For six months the ignorant and misguided peasantry held their own, sacking and destroying castles and convents, and committing deplorable excesses. Upon feudalism regaining the upper hand, of hanging and beheading there was no end, or, as another contemporary expressed it, 
It was all so that even a stone had been moved to pity, for the chastisement and vengeance of the conquering lords was great. Note, the number of victims to this tragical insurrection has been placed by some historians as high as 130,000. Within ten years of the suppression of the peasants' rising, Europe witnessed another effort to impose forcibly a material kingdom of Christ. A group of fanatics reinforced by enthusiasts and political discontents from various parts of Europe fortified themselves within the city of Munster and proclaimed it the New Jerusalem, the city of regeneration, the thousand years' kingdom according unto his holy pleasure. It is needless to consider the sequent events in Munster, as with the exception of a small but noisy minority, the mystics rigorously condemned the use of carnal weapons and deprecated as wild men the advocates of physical force. The Siege of Munster not only stands out, however, as one of the most remarkable and romantic episodes in history, but has an added interest in the probability that it was the basis and inspiration of John Bunyan's holy war. In the eyes of Bunyan, the Munsterists were the saints of God warring against the power of this world and of Satan. Among the royal insignia manufactured at Munster for the popularly elected King of Zion was a golden ball. On the ball, says Mr. Bax, was a golden cross on which the words were, A king of righteousness everywhere. On the fall of Munster, the leaders of the movement were skinned alive with red-hot pincers, and the rank and file suffered the customary massacre. History does not record any further attempts to impose the millennium by the sword, but the evidence of trademarks proves how extensively during subsequent centuries millenary notions were entertained. The hands clasped in brotherly concord need no comment, and in figure 157 their meaning is further pointed by the addition of the heart and cross. The sympathies of Komensky leaned inevitably towards the common man. He figures him in the labyrinth as presenting a petition of his manifold grievances, showing his wheels, stripes, and wounds, and begging for some remission of being so driven and harassed that bloody sweat ran down him. The common man is informed by the council of authority that, as he apparently does not appreciate the favor of his superiors, he must accustom himself to their ferocity. But the concession is ironically granted that, if by willingness, compliance, and true attachment to his superiors and rulers he can succeed in gaining their favor, he shall be allowed to enjoy it. But the working men of the Middle Ages were indomitable optimists, and they continued to anchor their hopes upon the imminence of Christ's coming. In figure 160, the anchor of hope points upward to the globe and cross, and the cross upon figure 161 stamps it as the banner of Christ and the sign of his triumph. Both these standards are tipped with the trefoil, and the streamers in figure 162 weave themselves into the form of an S. The letter S stood frequently for spiritus, and in its present context may be read as an emblem of the passage. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgressions in Jacob, saith the Lord. Arise, shine, for the light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon thee, 
and his glory shall be seen upon thee. The Z of Zion is seen on figure 163, and the S of Spiritus on figure 164. It is hard for us, living in these secure and comparatively enlightened days, to realize the wistfulness and expectation with which the medieval mystics yearned for the brightness of thy rising. Make haste, they said, make haste, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountains of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. The Enlightenment, which the heretics of the Middle Ages understood as the Millennium, is known nowadays as the Renaissance, and it may be compared with that redemption for which, says the Apostle Paul, all creation groans and travails in the pain of desire. The printer's mark herewith is a plant being watered from the rose of a watering pot, and the motto reads, Adonic opata venient, until the desired things come. There can be little doubt as to what was implied by optata, the desired for things. Before having met with this eloquent device, I wrote, What we call the Renaissance was merely the fruiting of a plant whose cult had been the cherished work of centuries. It was not an untended wild flower, but rather a plant rare and exotic, cherished by the centuries of blood and tears. Prophecies of the expected dawn were as plentiful as were emblems illustrating it, and hopes of the blessed aurora seemed never to have flagged. Figures 166 and 167 illustrate the dawn approaching with her bright streamers. The forerunner of pleasant Phoebus, who with her clear and glistening beams brings forth that blessed day long wished for of many. Aurora, of the Latins, or Eos, of the Greeks, is identical with the Hindu Ushas, of whom 3,000 years ago an Indian singer wrote, Ushas, daughter of the sky, hold thy ruddy lights on high, bring us food with dawning day, riches with thy radiant ray. White-robed nymph of morning sky, bring us light, let shadows fly. Lo, she comes in crimson car, scattering splendor from afar. From the realms beyond the sun, in her chariot comes the dawn. Usha's in her loveliness comes to rouse us and to bless. Note, Fama Fraternitatis, R.C. Anon, 1614-1616. Mortals in devotion bend, hymns and songs of joy ascend. Usha's in her radiant beauty comes to wake us to our duty, brings us blessings in her car, drives all evil things afar. White-robed daughter of the sky, hold thy ruddy light on high. Day by day with dawning light, bring us blessings ever bright. Bring us blessings in thy car, drive the shades of night afar. Rig Veda, Hymn to Ushas, the Dawn Goddess, from Indian Poetry, Dutt, pages 20-22. The keys surmounting the emblem of love in figure 168 were the symbols of Janus, the doorkeeper of heaven whose name Janus is a form of Dianus and contains the same root as dies, day. It was the role of Janus to fling open the portals of the sky and liberate the dawn, sometimes represented by a wading bird. The waders herewith, ibises, cranes, or herons, note the ibis was also reverenced as the destroyer of serpents and the drinker of pure water, see Plutarch, Isis and Osiris symbolized the morning because standing in water or at the seashore 
They were the first to welcome the dawn as she came up from the east. Either by intention or intuition, Farquharson's well-known picture, Dawn, represents a waste of waters and a crane flapping upwards. Among the Egyptians, a bird known as the Banu, a sort of heron, was regarded as the emblem of regeneration and betokened the re-arising of the sun, the return of Osiris to the light. The Romance of Symbolism The baboon, with uplifted paws, was the emblem of wisdom hailing the uprising dawn. The baboon was adopted as an emblem of wisdom from its serious expression and human ways, and its habit of chattering at the sunrise led to its being reverenced as the hailer of the dawn. Religion of Ancient Egypt, Flinders Petrie The baboon and the ibis were the emblems of Thoth, the reformer, the regenerator, and the god of writing and learning. The Egyptians called the ibis a teku, and teku was one of the names of Thoth. The month Thoth, like our January derived from Janus, was the first or opening month of the year. Chapter 5. The Good Spirit Monotheism of the Ancients The Tetragrammaton The Aleph Tau Alpha and Omega The Compasses The Sphere The Scarabaeus The Double-Headed Eagle The Thunderbird the three circles, the clover leaf, the quadrifoil, the figure four, the svastika, Solomon's knots, the eye of heaven, the watcher, the panther's breath, the bull roarer, the bad serpent, the mystic tie, Jupiter's chain, the collar of SS, the goose that laid the golden egg, the silly sheep, the good shepherd, the sacred king. Honey and Milk, the Milk Pale, Orpheus, Osiris, the Sacred Bull, the Moon, an instrument of the armies above. Before beginning and without an end, as space eternal and as surety sure, is fixed a power divine which moves to good, only its laws endure. The Light of Asia Belief in the existence of a beneficent, omnipotent, and omniscient spirit is and has been more or less universal. The primitive religions of China, Egypt, Mexico, and Peru all exhibit a pure monotheism and a high standard of ethics. And monotheism is similarly apparent in the venerable collection of Indian hymns and legends known as the Vedas, circa 1500 BC. He the Father made us all, he the ruler hears our call, he the feeder feeds each nation, each creature in its station. Names of many gods he bears, he is one we seek by prayers. Elsewhere, the Rig Veda affirms there is one existence, sages call it by many names. And there is reason to believe that the numerous divinities of Egypt were originally local expressions of an underlying monotheism. Plutarch maintained that all the names of the gods referred to the same essence. Not different gods for different peoples, not barbarian and Greek, not southern and northern, but just as sun and moon and earth and sea are common to all. Though they are called by different names among different peoples, so to the Logos that orders all things, and to one providence that also directs powers ordained to serve under her for all purposes. 
of different honors and titles have been given according to their laws by different nations. Although it was recognized among Grecian mystics that Jove, Pluto, Phoebus, Bacchus are all one, and although Micah depicts the millennium as every man walking in the name of his God, adding, We will walk in the name of the Lord our God. The official custodians of Christianity worked similarly to suppress what they'd condemned as heretical depravity of mind. If a manichae passed over into the Christian system of Constantine, he was required to forswear his late associates with the formula, I curse those persons who say that Zoroaster and Buddha and Christ and Manichees and the Son are all one and the same. The philosophic system known as the Kabbalah, which exercised a far-reaching influence upon the thought of Europe during the later Middle Ages, numbered 72 terms for the Godhead. And with many of these names, we shall meet in the course of the present inquiries. The characters within figure 174 form the Hebrew tetragrammaton, or four-lettered mystery name of the creative power, derived from and combining within itself the past, present, and future forms of the verb to be, the tetragrammaton was revered as a symbol of the immutable I am. It is found in theologies other than the Hebrew, and in the triliteral form Om was used as a password in Egyptian mysteries. It was regarded among Mohammedans as an omnific syllable whose efficacy cured the bites of serpents and restored the lame, the maimed, and the blind. The Brahmins maintained that all rites, oblations, and sacrifices will pass away. But that which passes not away is the syllable Om. Since it is a symbol of God, the Lord of created beings. The combination of A and T here illustrated is the Hebrew form of Alpha and Omega. T Tau being the last letter and A Aleph the first in the Hebrew alphabet. The symbol of the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, was not restricted to Christianity, but has been found among Egyptian documents. The expression last is generally misunderstood in this connection, the truer implication being the end of the last days and the dawn of a new era or beginning. Related to the Alpha and Omega is the familiar dove. The dove was regarded as a symbol of the good spirit because of the circles on its throat, the colors of which were taken to represent the seven spirits of God or rays of the prism constituted by the Trinity. It was also understood that the soft and insinuating voice of the turtle was an echo on earth of the voice of God. The dove was considered to be an equivalent of the Alpha and Omega because the numerical value of the Greek word for dove, Ato-1, was the same as the numerical value of the letters A-O written backwards. Figure 181 is the well-known mark of Christopher Planton, the great printer. The compasses with or without the hand of God, were the sign of him who fixed the earth and sky and measured out the firmament. There is a reference in Proverbs to the Creator preparing the heavens and setting a compass upon the face of the deep. It is said that the compass's two points represent spirit and matter, life and form. From these, all the complexities of the fleeting, ever-changing mantle of the one life are produced within the circle self-imposed by the being who has decreed the bounds of his universe or his system. 
The authors of The Perfect Way point out that among the symbols and insignia of the Egyptian gods, none is more frequently depicted than the sphere. This sphere, illustrated below, was the emblem of creative motion, because manifesting force is rotary, being in fact the wheel of the spirit of life, described by Ezekiel as a wheel within a wheel, the whole system of the universe from the planet to its ultimate particle revolving in the same matter. The insect illustrated in figures 188 and 189 is the Egyptian scarabaeus, the symbol of self-existence being. The scarabaeus was worshipped and revered because of the iridescent beauty of its wing sheaths, but more particularly on account of its peculiar habit of molding mud pellets. There are many that to this day, says Plutarch, believe that the beetle kind hath no female but that the males cast out their sperm into a round pellet of earth, which they roll about by thrusting it backward with their hinder part, and this an imitation of the sun, which, while it moves from west to east, turns the heaven the contrary way. The Egyptians called the scarabaeus chepera, a word which is also the Egyptian for being. In figure 190, the scarab is associated with a two-headed eagle, the symbol for omnipotence. The two-headed eagle was worshipped by the Hittites as the emblem of the king of heaven. And the Hittite bird of the sun is said to be the magic rock of oriental mythology. It was a rock, the mortal enemy of serpents, that carried Sinbad the sailor to an altitude so great that he lost sight of earth, and it was a rock that transported him into the Valley of Diamonds. Central American mythology records the existence of a great bird called Volk and associates it with a serpent-swallowing episode. The Australian natives believe that birds were the original gods, and that the eagle especially is a great creative power. Note, according to Swedenborg, precious stones signify spiritual truths, and the monuments of Egypt call precious stones hard stones of truth. The Science of Correspondences Mr. Andrew Lang, who reproduces in Custom and Myth, an illustration of the North American Thunderbird, observes that Red Indians have always, as far as European knowledge goes, been in the habit of using picture writing for the purpose of retaining their legends, poems, and incantations. The eagle was identified with Zeus, the Thunderer, and the European Spread Eagle, see figure 192, accords very closely with the Red Indian Thunderbird as illustrated in figure 191. During the Mosaic period, the eagle was regarded as an emblem of the Holy Spirit, and its portrayal with two heads is said to have recorded the double portion of spirit, miraculously bestowed upon Elisha. Dante refers to the eagle as the bird of God, and pictures the spirits of just princes as forming their hosts into the figure of an eagle. Lo, how straight up to heaven he holds them reared, winnowing the air with those eternal plumes. In heraldry, one sometimes encounters an eagle on the summit of a ladder. The ladder is the scala perfectionis, and the eagle is the goal of the vision. Occasionally, the divisors of eagle emblems emphasize the purpose of their designs by adding a supplementary symbol of the Great Spirit. The cross and three circles in figure 195 and on the breast of figure 194 represent the threefold deity. 
that trinity and unity which this globulous triangle and immortal, immortal figure represents. Note in figure 196 the olive wreath of peace and the heart of love. The modern pawnbroker's sign is a degraded survival of the arms of the Medici family and subsequently of Lombardy. The three golden spheres once represented the triple perfection, gold being the perfect metal, and the sphere or circle the perfect form. In figure 178, these three circles of perfection are associated with the Elif Tau. The three principles of the divine essence were also portrayed by a cloverleaf. There is a tradition that St. Patrick, preaching the doctrine of the Trinity to the pagan Irish, plucked a shamrock and employed it as an object lesson. But the word shamrock is Arabic, and the trefoil or three-lobed leaf is a symbol more ancient and more widely spread than Christianity. The deity has very generally been conceived as threefold, and in the ruined temples of both East and West, the trefoil emblem is abundant. The number four and the quadrifoil were held as sacred to the Supreme Spirit, as was the number three. The potent tetragrammaton was a four-lettered word, and almost all peoples of antiquity possessed a name for the deity composed of four letters. Note, Assyrian Adad, Egyptian Amun, Persian Sire, Greek Theos, Latin Deus, German Gott, French Deu, Turkish Asar, Arabian Allah, Numbers, their occult power and mystic virtue, Win Westcott. Among the Gnostics, the supreme being was denoted by four. On this sacrosanct figure, the oath was administered among the Pythagoreans. An oath which is given by Iamblichus as follows. By that pure quadriliteral name on high, nature's eternal fountain and supply, the parent of all souls that living be, by it with faithful oath I swear to thee. One reason for this reverence of the figure four was the perfect equality of the four sides of a square. None of the bounding lines exceeding the others by a single point. Hence it became a geometrical symbol of the equity and justice of the divinity, in whom not unequal dwells. The geometrical four was used not infrequently to denote the supreme point and pinnacle of ascent. Note, on an old house in Peebles is a carving of the numeral four, supported by a male and female figure. The inscription reads, We love equity. It is thus employed in figures 204 and 203, and the latter, the initials IR, will denote Jesus Redemptor. Sometimes the four is duplicated so that it reads either upwards or downwards. A correspondent has suggested that the circle in figure 206 represents the round world, and that the two fours symbolize the passage, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I free from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. The eagle herewith is marked with the upward and the downward. Among the symbols of antiquity, probably the most widely distributed is the four-limbed cross with four lines at right angles to each limb, known as the svastika. It is found in Scandinavia, Persia, India, Mexico, Peru, Greece, Scotland, and in the prehistoric burial grounds of North America, where it appears always to have been associated with sun worship. The meaning most usually assigned to it is, it is well, 
the Sanskrit word having in its roots to be and well. Mrs. G. F. Watts describes it as a sign of beneficence, indicating that the maze of life may bewilder, but the path of light runs through it. It is well, is the name of the path, and the key to life eternal is in the strange labyrinth for those whom God leadeth. The svastika is to be seen woven into the centers of the labyrinthine designs illustrated in figures 208 and 209. These traceries, known in Italy as Solomon's knots, occur in more or less complicated forms and are frequently to be seen on Celtic crosses. Without beginning and without an end, they were regarded as emblems of the divine inscrutability, and it was not unusual to twist them into specific forms so that they constituted supplementary symbols within symbols. As a rule, they were traced in a three- or fourfold form, but figure 215, a peculiarly ingenious exception, is an unending tracing of three triplets of clover leaves. The center is a five-rayed star, and the whole is the form of a flower. Figure 216 also forms the flower and star. Figure 218 is a trefoil associated with the Lux cross and the initials of Jesus Redemptor. The fourfold mandar is the center of figure 219, is traceable to India, and is occasionally found as in figure 220 in the form of a cavalry. Figures 221 and 222 show variants of the same idea. There is an interesting example of knot carving on the font in Dolan Parish Church where the architect has woven a series of figures, eight, eight, as has been mentioned, being the symbol of regeneration. In The Labyrinth, Komensky strengthens his fellow sufferers with the assurance, We have a most watchful guardian, protector, defender, the Almighty God himself. Therefore, let us rejoice. Figure 223 depicts the foreseeing, watchful, and unsleeping eye of the Almighty, an emblem familiar to India and known in Egypt as the Eye of Horus or of Osiris. The Watcher himself was symbolized by the panther or leopard, presumably because of the eye-like spots upon its skin. Note, the terms leopard and panther seem to have been used indifferently and indiscriminately. The leopards of heraldry are sometimes panthers or lions and the panther's skin of Bacchus and Pan is spotted like a leopard's. In Egypt, the spotted skin of a leopard was always suspended near the images of Osiris, who was himself represented as a crouching leopard surmounted by an open eye. The name Osiris is said by Plutarch to have been understood as Os equals many and Iri equals I, i.e. the many-eyed. Figures 224 and 226 portray the incomprehensible one furnished with innumerable eyes, whom all nature longeth after in different ways. And the tale of figure 224 is conspicuously twisted into the form of a fleur-de-lis. It was a favorite device among the symbolists to utilize the tales of their symbolic creatures, and numerous examples of this custom are to be met with. Note, a well-known Mithraic symbol was a bull with the tuft of hair at the end of its tail twisted into three bearded ears of corn. In the personality of Jesus Christ, the mystics hailed the divine culmination of all preceding types and deities. Hence, Jesus was sometimes spoken of as Rabbi Ben Panther, 
and he was said to have been the son of one panther. Some mystics assume this to be a play upon the Greek words pan and theos, and to mean all the gods. The old superstition that the breath of the panther was so sweetly fragrant that it allured men, beasts, and cattle to inhale it was in all probability due to a forgotten fable. Breath means spirit, and in the breath of the panther was presumably figured the sweetness of the breath of life, or holy spirit. Air, breath, and wind were worldwide synonyms for spirit. And in many languages the words for soul, spirit, air, and breath are identical. The Supreme Spirit seems in many directions to have been originally conceived as gentle air and mighty wind. The South American Indians worshipped Huracan, the mighty wind, whence our word hurricane. Jupiter was the deity of wind, rain, and thunder, and the natives of New Zealand regarded the wind as an indication of the presence of God. A hymn called Breath, or Haha, an invocation to the mystic wind, is pronounced by Maori priests on the initiation of young men into tribal mysteries. Among the religious rites of ancient nations, none was more universal than the use of an implement known nowadays in England as a swish, buzzer, whizzer, boomer, or bull roarer. This present-day toy has been described by Professor Haddon as perhaps the most ancient, widely spread, and sacred religious symbol in the world. It consists of a slab of wood which, when tied to a piece of string and whirled rapidly around, emits a roaring, fluttering, and unearthly noise. The Australian natives, among whom the turndom or bull roarer is still in use, claim that it enables their sorcerers to fly up to heaven. One woman believed that in the sound of a bull roarer, she heard the Australian great spirit descend in a mighty rushing noise. The bull roarer, used always as a sacred instrument, is still employed in New Mexico, the Malay Peninsula, Ceylon, New Zealand, Africa, and Australia, and under the name of Rhombus it figured preeminently in the mysteries of ancient Greece. Mr. Andrew Lang, describing an exhibition at the Royal Institution, says that when first the bull roarer was whirled round, it did nothing in particular, but that upon warming to its work it produced what may be best described as a mighty rushing noise as if some supernatural being fluttered and buzzed its wings with fearful roar. Primitive races imagine that by mimicking any effect they desire to produce, they actually produce it. That the making of a fire causes sunshine, the sprinkling of water brings rain, and so forth. There is thus a great probability that the mysterious and hitherto perplexing bull roar was used to call or evoke the Supreme Spirit. Ezekiel describes the voice of the Spirit as a great rushing, and there is a similar reference in the Acts to a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The objects represented in figures 227 and 228 must, I think, be meant to represent bull roars. There are examples in the British Museum varying from this laurel leaf form to that of a diamond lozenge. The Greek term rhombus applies the ancient bull roars were rhombus-shaped. A writer in the Hibbert Journal points out that in Australia, as at the present day in Scotland, the bull roar is regarded as a thunder spell. Its roaring represents the muttering of thunder, and in the words of the Australian native, 
Thunder is the voice of him, pointing upwards, calling on the rain to fall and make everything to grow up new. Whether this idea of growing up new applied simply to physical nature, or whether it was understood in a poetic and mystic sense, is difficult to determine. But the leitmotiv of dying to live runs right through the initiation ceremonies of Australia. Note, Dionysus, who possessed several of the attributes subsequently assigned to Jesus Christ, and at whose rites the bull-roarer was employed, was surnamed Bromius, i.e. the Roarer, and he was sometimes referred to as the Father-Roarer. The Gnostics King 126, the panther was sacred to Dionysus. Among the European mystics of the Middle Ages, the bull roar was apparently considered to be an emblem of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The regenerative number 8 is apparent on figure 227, and on figure 228, there appears a roughly executed serpent, a symbol of regeneration. No beast of the field has had so many lessons exemplified by its attributes as the serpent. The sloughing of its worn-out skin led to its adoption as a symbol of the spiritual rebirth. But there was also seen to be a close analogy between the serpent's crawl and the dust and the earth-creeping attitude of materialism. Thus, the same object served sometimes as the symbol of two diametrically opposed ideas. And an allegory one meets as constantly with the evil as with the good serpent. It was the serpent of materialism more subtle than any beast of the field that seduced Eve in Eden. During the wanderings of the Israelites, the dual symbolism of the serpent is brought into juxtaposition in the story that the children of Israel were mortally bitten by serpents, and that those who looked upon the serpent uplifted by Moses were healed. There is a Maori legend that heaven and earth were once united, but subsequently were severed by a serpent. It has been the mission of the mystics and the poets to attack materialism and remarry the sundered earth and heaven. The idea that the serpent symbolized materialism elucidates many traditional but fictitious enmities, such as that between the stag and serpents and between the rock and serpents. Mysticism has always maintained that the concourse of whirling atoms termed matter but which science has been quite unable either to reduce to its ultimate or to define, is unsubstantial and unreal, and that the only substance in this universe is the invisible force called spirit, a force which alone molds and controls matter to its desire, like clay in the hands of a potter. They preached in season and out of season, the dogma that spirit was permanent and matter mere appearance. Among other mystic flotsam from the past, Freemasonry has inherited and preserved the tradition of a mystic tie, described as that sacred and inviolable bond which unites men of the most discordant opinions into one bond of brothers, which gives but one language to men of all nations, and one altar to men of all religions. This mysterious bond of union cannot be anything else than spirit, the influence which links minds of similar tastes into kinship and hitches earth to heaven. Among Monsieur Briquet's emblems are some objects which he describes as crochets, but which in reality are links, see figures 229 to 231. In figure 232, the link is attached to the fourfold emblem of divinity, 
an emblem which was also attached to the compasses in figure 183. And in figure 233, the interlocking of two links forms a mystic tie, suggestive of the regenerative eight. Some of these ties or knots are a combination of the S, of the spiritus, and of the figure eight. The extremities of the octagonal S in figure 234 are two S's, standing for Sanctus Spiritus. From the S of figure 221, ante page 83, rises the quadrifoil, and the finials of figure 239 are four trefoils. In figure 244, the three circles of perfection have been introduced, and in figure 240, the inference of the upward and downward four has been supplied by the cross. In figures 241 and 243, the all-pervading S is hallowed with a cross, and in figure 242 is surrounded by the circle of eternal perfection. The mystics were links in a long chain of spiritual tradition. They were the units of a procession which it was believed started from the Golden Age and from the Land of Heaven. The tongues of mysticism have most generally been the poets who have claimed that. From the Word, the Word is kindled. From a spark, the world is lit. So by golden links extended, verse by verse, the song is knit. In The Advancement of Learning, Bacon refers to that excellent and divine fable of the golden chain, namely that men were not able to draw Jupiter down to the earth, but contrarywise, Jupiter was able to draw them up to heaven. In the essay, he writes, a little or superficial test of philosophy may perchance incline the mind of man to atheism, but a full draft thereof brings the mind back again to religion. For in the entrance of philosophy, when the second causes which are next unto the senses do offer themselves to the mind of man, and the mind itself cleaves unto them and dwells there, an oblivion of the highest cause may creep in. But when a man passeth on farther and beholds the dependency, continuation, and confederacy of causes, and the works of providence, then, according to the allegory of the poets, he will easily believe that the highest link in nature's chains must needs be tied to the foot of Jupiter's chair. Tennyson expresses this idea in the couplet, The whole round earth is every way bound by gold chains about the feet of God. And it is to this same chain that Blake refers in the familiar lines. I give you the end of a golden string, only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate, built in Jerusalem's wall. At times, the golden string was represented by eight-like knots in figures 246, 247. But the more usual form was a sequence of plain S's as in figure 248 where the chain surrounds the eagle of omnipotence. Into the inner chain of the arms of Jerusalem have been woven the S of Spiritus, the R of Regeneratio, and the eight-like mystic tie. Among the chain border ornaments of the 17th century bookplate, illustrated in figure 250, will be noticed the initials S and SS. Shakespeare, describing the symbols of nobility carried at the baptism of Queen Elizabeth, details callers of SS. These, like other paraphernalia of heraldry, were once symbolic, and the collar of SS represented the golden chain of Sanctus Spiritus. A solitary S may almost invariably be read as Spiritus, a double SS as Sanctus Spiritus, and a treble SSS as the three acclamations, 
Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. Three eight-like S's make the number 888 bore the additional signification Jesus. The numerical value of the letters J-E-S-U-S amounting exactly to 888. By some such similar method of computation, the number 666 was recognized as the mark of the beast. In Fragments of Faith Forgotten, Mr. Mead says that the generative power was called not only wind, but also a serpent, the latter because of the hissing sound it produces. The meaning of the geese emblems herewith puzzled me for a long while until the idea struck me that the flame emerging from the mouths was intended to represent the goose's hiss. There is little doubt that this was a fortunate guess, that the goose was assumed to be full of the Holy Spirit, and that its sibilant hiss was understood to be the emission of spirit. The word goose is evidently allied to goost, the ancient form of ghost, i.e. spirit. The Anglo-Saxon for goose was goss, which again brings us back to ghost or goost, as it is sometimes used to be spelt. Plutarch says that the Egyptians give the name of Jupiter to the breath. It was probably for this reason that the goose or breath bird was sacred to Juno, the female Jupiter. It is perhaps for the same reason that the Hindus represent Brahma, the breath of life, as riding upon a goose, and that the Egyptians symbolized Seb, the father of Osiris, as a goose, which they termed the great cackler. According to the Hindu theory of creation, the Supreme Spirit laid a golden egg resplendent as the sun, and from this golden egg was born Brahma, the progenitor of the universe. The Egyptians had a similar story and described the sun as an egg laid by the primeval goose, in later times said to be a god. It is probable that our fairy tale of the goose that laid the golden eggs is a relic of this very ancient mythology. In figure 254, the goose is seen sitting upon its nest, and in figure 255, it is associated with its traditional egg. Note Religion of Ancient Egypt, W.M. Flinders Petrie, according to Mr. Baring Gould, the rock of the Arabian Nights broods over its great luminous egg, the sun. C.F. Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. The suggestion underlying the tale of the slain goose of the golden eggs would appear to be that spirit or inspiration is the magic provider of daily and perpetual treasures, and that the fool who kills his goose is the uncompromising materialist who murders imagination. The letter killeth, the spirit giveth life. In figure 252, the blessed fowl was standing on a mountaintop. In figure 256, it symbolizes a way to regeneration. Over figure 258 is the morning star, and over figure 257, the fleur-de-lis of light. The mystics deemed themselves to be watchful and unslumbering geese, and these geese emblems now under consideration probably illustrate the prophecy of Isaiah. He will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar, and will hiss unto them from the ends of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall weary, none shall stumble among them, none shall slumber nor sleep. With this may also be compared the prophecy of Zechariah. They went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them and they shall increase as they have increased, 
and I will sow them among the people. And they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. Surmounting figure 253 is the R of the regenerate or redeemed. The original sanctity of the goose may account for our expression, silly goose, the word silly being of pious derivation and meaning originally blessed, happy, innocent, and gentle. At the time of Caesar's invasion, the goose was taboo to the Britons. There is no ground for the popular idea that the goose is in any respect a foolish fowl. But on the contrary, it is described by those who have studied its habits as the wisest bird in Europe. A symbolic relative of the silly goose is the silly sheep, which in figures 259 to 261 is seen in the traditional aspect of the Angus Day, rising up of the ensign of Christ. The lamb, with its fleece of snow, was the symbol of meekness, innocence, and purity. Much pastoral poetry is representative of something more than Arcadian philandering, and the shepherds and shepherdesses of the poets are not infrequently allegoric. With mystic intuition, a modern poet has well written, She walks, the lady of my delight, a shepherdess of sheep. Her flocks are thoughts. She keeps them white. She guards them from the steep. She feeds them on the fragrant height and folds them in for sleep. In allegory, there is usually meanings attributed to every symbol. Thus, taking sheep as an instance, there are three degrees. One, the white and innocent thoughts of the mind. Two, the man himself who has become lamb-like. Three, the lamb of God. Similarly, there is one, he who rules and shepherds his own thoughts. Two, he who shepherds his fellow creatures. And three, the supreme good shepherd. It was to shepherds watching their flocks by night that the angel of the Lord is said to have announced the coming of the Christ. Just as, according to Isaiah, the watchful and unslumbering geese were collected and gathered together, so does Ezekiel assemble the sheep. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered. So will I seek out my sheep, and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people, and gather them from the countries, and will bring them to their own land, and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and which will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. Thus concludes Ezekiel, shall they know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God. And ye my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. Peter exhorting the elders among his hearers to feed the flock of God, until the chief shepherd shall appear, observes, Ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. The pastoral staffs herewith are symbols of the good shepherd and the bishop of all souls. The cross of light surmounts figure 263 and figures 262 and 264 are distinguished by the trefoil of the deity. 
The idea of a heavenly shepherd or feeder, the giver of divine nectar, is common to nearly all primitive beliefs. In fact, after the 8th century, Christianity largely discontinued the use of the Good Shepherd emblem because it was so widely employed among Jews and pagans. In the Hermetic literature of Egypt, 300 BC, God is referred to as the shepherd and king who leads with law and justice, and disputes his logos, the word made flesh, his firstborn son to take charge of the sacred flock. Note the hymns of Hermes, Mede, also personal religion in Egypt before Christianity, Flinders Petrie, Passim. This holy flock numbered not only sheep, but doubtless also geese and kine. And there are certain early Christian inscriptions wherein the neophytes are termed suckling calves. It is fabled that Apollo was the possessor of a herd of sacred cattle, and that as a punishment for violating them, destruction fell upon certain unruly followers of Ulysses. The sacred herd of curve-horned cattle, milk dispensers to the household, reappears in the traditional legends of Finland, which are preeminently interesting as they preserve an exceptional percentage of Chaldean lore. The Finns, who still maintain an uncanny reputation for magic, are supposed to have originally migrated from Asia, and in their racial characteristics are distinct from any of their neighbors. The writer of Ezekiel was a priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chibar. And it is interesting to compare Ezekiel's assembling of the sheep with the Calavella's mustering of the cattle. Come ye home, ye curve-horned cattle, milk dispensers to the household. Let the cattle rest in quiet, leave in peace the hoofed cattle. Let the herd securely wander, let them march in perfect order, through the swamps and through the open, through the tangle of the forest. Never, dow thou, dare to touch them, nor to wickedly molest them. The injunction against molesting the cattle of the sun is paralleled in the Calavella by the warning, Never venture to approach thou where the golden herd is living. Canaan, the El Dorado of the Hebrews, was fabled to be a land flowing with milk and honey, presumably same honey that, according to the Calavella, is fermenting and is working on the hills of golden color and upon the plains of silver. There is food for those who hunger. There is drink for all the thirsty. There is food to eat that fills not. There is drink that never lessens. The figure of Christ and the Good Shepherd is frequently represented with a vessel hanging on his arm or suspended on a tree. This, says Mr. Sidney Heath, is the mokra, or milk pail, that was considered symbolic of the spiritual nourishment derived from Christ. Figures 265 to 267 presumably represent muktras suspended from a branch. Among the ancients, milk was regarded as a heavenly nourishment and the laver of regeneration, and it is still administered by Hindus to dying persons. The modern descendants from Zoroastrianism use it sacramentally, and such is the belief in its cleansing efficacy that scrupulous Parsis still carry a small bottle in their pocket wherewith to purify themselves from any unhallowed contact. By the primitive Christians, Christ the Good Shepherd was identified with Orpheus, and an early emblem in the catacombs represents him sitting Orpheus-like among the birds and beasts, charming them with the golden tones of his music. 
Orpheus, fabled to be the son of Apollo, the protector of flocks and cattle, is said to have been the inventor of letters and of everything that contributed to civilization. And in later times there sprang up a mystic order which maintained an enthusiastic worship of his memory and doctrines. He was regarded as the first poet of the heroic age, anterior both to Homer and Hesiod, and his characteristics reappear in the Kalevala in the person of Wenmoinen. Note, Bacon expounds Orpheus as philosophy, an interpretation that is probably correct. This culture hero is recorded to have been the son of Ukko, the lord of the vault of air, and to have been sent by his all-righteous father to teach men music and the arts of agriculture. The Calavella shows how Wainamoinen seated himself on a hill all silver shining, Sir Walter Raleigh's silver mountains, and how he lured the wolves out of their lairs, the fish out of the rivers, and the birds out of the branches. Finally, the whole of Tapua people, all the boys and all the maidens, climbed upon a mountain summit that they might enjoy the music. In Egypt, the culture hero and world harmonizer was Osiris the Regenerator. Osiris is said to have invented agricultural instruments, to have taught men how to harness oxen to the plow, and how rightly to worship the gods. After having bestowed these blessings upon his own countrymen, he assembled a host with which he set forth to conquer the world, not with weapons, but with music and eloquence. The beneficent career of Osiris was, however, cut suddenly short by the murderous trickery of Typhon, his envious and malicious brother. Subsequently, the soul of Osiris was supposed to inhabit the body of the sacred bull Apis, at whose death it transferred itself to a successor. The individual animal that was recognized to be Apis was selected by certain signs. A white square mark on the forehead, another in the form of an eagle on its back, and a lump under its tongue in the shape of a scarabaeus. When found, the sacred animal was fed with milk for four months and placed in a building facing the east. For the Egyptians, Apis, the sacred bull, was admittedly a faint shadow of the Creator and the Babylonish bulls undoubtedly had once a similar significance. The designs herewith are evidently symbols of the sacred bull. In symbolism, each detail has invariably some meaning. The heart of love is woven onto the forehead of figure 278. The features of figure 279 are the octagonal SS of Sanctus Spiritus. The S of Spiritus is associated with figures 272 and 273. And under figure 280 is the mystic tie. The three circles of perfection appear as the nostrils of figure 281, and the tail of the figs 268 to 271 are obviously trinity in unity. The circle under figure 276 identifies the perfect one, and the aleph tau under figure 274 the first and the last. The rudely designed pastoral crook surmounting figure 282 is an implication of the Good Shepherd. Over figure 283 is the trefoil of the Trinity, and the IC under figure 275 are the familiar initials of Jesus Christ. Figure 284 is a combination of crescent moon and bull's head, and the horns of figure 285 are again the crescent moon, which is here associated with the symbol of the Creator, because the moon was held to be a sign of heavenly host that was assembled by Osiris. 
The writer of Ecclesiasticus refers to her as an instrument of the armies above, shining in the firmament of heaven, the beauty of heaven, the glory of the stars, an ornament giving light in the highest places of the Lord. And there was a rabbinic legend that stars accompanied the moon, waiting upon her as a reward for her giving light during the darkness of the long night. At the commandment of the Holy One, says the writer of Ecclesiasticus, they will stand in their order and never faint in their watches. The emblems herewith depict this legend of the moon attended by the starry hosts of heaven. Figure 286 had survived as the arms of Turkey and figure 287 as those of Egypt. One must differentiate between the symbolism of the bull, the ox, and the cow. The bull represented the deity in his male aspect of creator, the cow the productive milk-yielding qualities of magna mater. For this reason, the cow was sacred to Isis, was worshipped among the Hindus, and is still revered as a sacred symbol of the deity by the inhabitants of the Gold Coast. The strong, toiling, and patient ox, dragging the plow over the hard, parched soil and compelling the earth to yield her increase, was the symbol of unremitting toil and self-sacrifice. It was among the oxen that Christ, not without reason, is recorded to have been born. The oxen that labor and endure, the geese that neither slumber nor sleep, and the stars which at the commandment of the Holy One stand untiring in their watches, symbolically represent the units of heavenly host marshaled by the God of Light. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.